Welcome to the IAF Global Regulatory Update Podcast. I'm Martin Boer, Director of Regulatory Affairs at the Institute of International Finance in Washington, D.C. For this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Leroy Terrellon, Vice President of Cyber Risk, and Leslie Ritter, Vice President and Senior Analyst of Moody's Investor Services, both based in New York. Leroy and Leslie frequently publish excellent research on trends in cybersecurity, and it is a pleasure to have you both here. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the outlook for cybersecurity for the financial sector in particular, including software supply chains, the impact of COVID-19 on cyber risk, ransomware, and the provision of cybersecurity insurance. Leroy and Leslie, welcome. It's great to see you both, and I hope that things are returning a bit to normal in New York. Hi, Martin. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Great. It's great to see you. Can you both begin by telling us a bit about what your roles are at Moody's, what your work entails, and what your priority areas are? Why don't we start with uh, Leroy, please? Sure, thanks. So I'll give you a little bit of context for our work, and that is that cyber risk is rising. That's for a couple of different reasons. Number one, there's increased digitization. So organizations are really realizing that they can have increased efficiency by moving their operations where they handle data to computer systems. And when they do that, that increases the risk that they could sustain some sort of cyber incident. The second is that we're seeing attack sophistication increase. And that's happening because the tools that are being used are continually evolving, as well as cyber criminals, they get together in communities online and they exchange ideas, they figure out tactics and techniques, uh, and they use that knowledge to increase the efficacy of their attacks. So uh, these attacks are really getting more sophisticated and evolving over time. Lastly, I'll say that there's been increased financial impact Back in maybe the 90s or the early 2000s, you'd see cyber attacks that were very simple. They were changing things on web pages or things like that. They didn't really have a lot of financial impact. But now we're seeing these attacks reach into the billions of dollars. Um, and so when that happens, there is material credit impact that can be associated with these types of attacks. So this is not something new for Moody's. Moody's has been focusing on cyber for a number of years. We've been talking about it with issuers. And there are reports from you know, the early 2010s on cyber issues. But what we have done in the past couple of years is to focus more intently on providing support and resources because Moody's analysts are financial analysts. They're not necessarily cybersecurity experts. I joined two years ago around the time that we started Moody's Cyber Risk Group. And what we do is we help analysts publish research on the impact of cyber on credit. And we also put out research that helps the market understand how these cyber incidents are, are affecting credit in general. So that's what we're doing inside the credit agency. We also have a joint venture called Visible Risk that works on cyber risk quantification. Um, and uh, uh, we're also collaborating more with Moody's Analytics, which is our, our sister organization within Moody's. They have a lot of quantitative and modeling capabilities that are going to really help the market understand how to quantify cyber risk as it relates to credit. Yeah, and as you said, we see here at Moody's that the cyber risk is rising and that has potential negative implications for the companies that we rate. So we really think that we need to deepen our understanding about how these companies are mitigating and managing this risk. So our working thesis is that cyber risk is enterprise risk. It's way beyond just IT risk. 
and governing risk. And to, to better understand how they're managing and mitigating this risk, we really need to know three things. Number one is how the security practice of a company works. Number two is how the cyber risk is governed. And number three is how cyber risk is transferred. How are you doing that, Leslie, given that there's such little publicly available information in terms of what companies are doing? Well, that's true. It's actually, it's been quite a challenge. And uh, that's really the reason why about a year ago we launched a uh, a global cyber survey. We sent a survey to thousands of issuers around the world asking questions about these three broad topics. Uh, to date, we've collected about 1,200 answers, and that's about roughly 72,000 new data points that we then have before that we can now analyze and learn from. Great. Thank you both so much. Leroy, let me ask you first, um, how do you characterize the overall environment at the moment for the financial services industry when it comes to cybersecurity and cyber risk? So in early 2019, we put out a cyber risk heat map. And in that heat map, we looked at 35 broad categories or broad sectors of rated debt. And as a part of that exercise, we looked at the vulnerability of different sectors to, uh, to cyber risk and, and their cyber risk exposure. Uh, the financial services industry, and that includes banks, securities firms, market infrastructure providers, uh, they're all rated as high risk. And this is because they have a very significant reliance on technology. Um, and they also have a lot of confidential information uh, that they use as part of their operations. And so uh, that creates uh, certain things like reputational risk because, you know, folks are, are counting on these organizations to keep their uh, information uh, secret and safe. Uh, and when that's not the case, they can potentially take their business elsewhere. Right. So let me ask Leslie a follow-up on that then. So how do you view the resilience of the financial sector compared to other industries? Because we hear that financial services are a more frequent target, but we also know that they invest quite a bit more in resources than other sectors do. Yeah, those are really two key points here. As, as you were saying, as Laura was saying, as a lot of studies are saying, uh, the financial sector's cyber risk exposure is high. But uh, our survey response shows that the industry is aware of the risk, number one, and number two is addressing it. So if we looked at the cyber risk practices uh, of the financial sector compared to corporates or um, governments, for instance, we see that typically they have much stronger cyber risk mitigation approaches. So let me give you an example, right? The use of red team testing, which is a fairly sophisticated cyber mitigant approach. Based on our survey, 83% of the banks that responded have said that they've carried out a routine test over the past 12 months. That compares to 44% for non-financial corporates and 20% for state and local governments. Now, another interesting point that we gleaned from our survey is that 86% of banks' CISOs report directly to the C-suite versus 70% of non-financial corporates. In our view, that's important because there's really a direct correlation between the tight linkage between the security and executive functions and greater cyber budget and headcount allocations. Let's turn to the recent developments around COVID-19, which is not only a health and economic crisis, but it's also radically changed the way that we're all working. Leroy, how has COVID-19 impacted cybersecurity? also given that so many employees and their customers are now working remotely. Well, I'll start with the good news first, which is that because of technological advances, 
organizations, employees, many of them were able to continue working without much of a disruption to their work patterns. So, you know, that's, that's the good news. The challenge is that when you take workforce and move them outside of the corporate network, you know, you, you have some issues there with managing and monitoring employees, applications, and data that when the protections were set up, the assumption would be that primarily most of the time they would be on the corporate network. So when you have uh, people operating from coffee shops, from their home Wi-Fi, these systems were not set up with the same types of security procedures uh, as a corporate network is. And so these employees are more exposed to things like malware, including things like ransomware. We've seen a big increase over uh, 2020 in, in the deployment of ransomware. And it's become such that they have these ransomware gangs that are targeting vulnerabilities in virtual private networks. And these are the software that employees can use while they're remote to get into the corporate network. And so uh, there's been a number of breaches that have happened in recent months where the fact that people were working remotely, getting in through these uh, VPNs, uh, has been a ripe target for cyber criminals. From a credit perspective, these new remote arrangements create some incremental vulnerabilities, but the actual cost that we're seeing associated with these um, attacks has been manageable. How about third parties impaired during this period? Let me ask Leslie, are there so much more emphasis on resilience now across the system? Have these third parties been stepping up or are they a weaker link in the financial sector ecosystem? Well, this is a very broad question, and you might not like the answer, but I would say it depends, right? Um, for example, if you look at electric utilities in the past, there had been uh, some concerns about how cyber secure they were, given their critical nature. I think over the past couple of years, they've really stepped up their, their cyber game. So resilience with regards to access to power for the financial sector has improved. But as we saw just a few weeks ago with the Excellent hack, third parties continue to be uh, a weak link. So let me ask a similar question to Leroy then about a supply chains. There have been a lot of recent incidents, such as the attack through SolarWinds, which you mentioned, and the Microsoft Exchange server, which have renewed concerns about software supply chains. What can you tell us about these types of cyber attacks? I always like to start with the good news first. And so <laughs> the good news here uh, is that uh, uh, companies are really doing a much better job. They've stepped up their cyber risk preparedness. Um, they've put in place a lot of uh, protections that um, are allowing them to be uh, have to, to have a more robust uh, stance uh, against these uh, types of attacks. The bad news is that, you know, this is a, a cat and mouse game. Um, and so the criminals are always finding the next thing, the next way they can get in. And right now that is, uh, through the software supply chains, um, compromising a software vendor has become a very easy way to, uh, bypass certain restrictions that may have been put in place, um, as well as to potentially attack, uh, you know, hundreds, even thousands of the vendors of you know, uh, a software developer, for example. Um, this is likely to keep happening for the foreseeable future because uh, some of these software vendors are very small. They don't have the resources to check um, as vigorously. Um, and it's, it's sometimes possible that um, vulnerabilities can creep in. Um, and then 
uh, it's also difficult for the customers to be able to check and make sure that all of the updates they're getting from the many different vendors that they have are all sound. Uh, improving supply chain cybersecurity is something that we talked about in a report that we put out in uh, July of 2020. Uh, and we said then that it may necessitate some vendor training, audits, and even potentially some on-site visits. Um, small companies that have fewer financial resources uh, will be at a disadvantage in this, but we are seeing some legislative solutions. So especially at the federal government level, for those software vendors who, are, who have federal government uh, clients, um, we're seeing some discussions now that um, they may be thinking about requiring uh, these companies to notify the federal government when there's um, some sort of incident that takes place so that the, they can, it can be remediated, and even something called a software bill of materials. And that's something that lists all of the different software components in a product to make it easier to trace when there's some sort of vulnerability to know who's responsible for fixing it, um, and even if that vulnerability exists in the product that's being used. So it sounds like software patches and and working with your suppliers are really important to have good cyber hygiene and to have a good cyber system. One of the larger trends that we've seen throughout the pandemic has been the acceleration of the digital uptake, especially when it comes to using the cloud. So more and more firms are going onto the cloud. But cloud providers have not been immune to breaches themselves. Leslie, how do you see this area developing? It's moving really fast, and, and cloud adoption is, is clearly uh, clearly happening. Uh, based on the data we collected, um, banks' IT applications uh, account that are run on the cloud accounts for about 10% of their total applications. Uh, we expect that number to double to about 20% by 2021. And that's just on average for the universe that we looked at. Obviously, some banks are much further along their cloud adoption uh, process than others. You might have actually seen the news in April, uh, a regional bank, uh, Bank United here in the U.S. announced that it had completed its transition to a, a fully cloud-enabled bank status, right? Um, but as you said, uh, there's, there's, there, there are some risks. So we understand that there's very good business reasons for cloud adoptions, clearly. But it does introduce a, a greater uh, attack surface and therefore more potential vulnerabilities. We all remember... Uh, Capital One in 2019 and the big data breach that was announced there. So as cloud adoption grows, it's it's very reasonable to expect that there'll be an increase in, in cloud-centered uh, cyber attacks. And one of the attacks that we've been seeing quite frequently recently has been ransomware. And uh, Leroy, you know, what you also mentioned it earlier, but can you elaborate a bit on why you think there's been an increase in ransomware and what type of impact this is having on firms and their operations? It's really helpful to think about ransomware as a business. That's how the ransomware gangs are thinking. And unfortunately um, for us, it's a very highly profitable business. That's what's fueled the rise of these ransomware gangs, the proliferation of the attacks. Um, and unfortunately, lots of victims are finding it easier to pay to regain access to their computer systems and also to avoid bad press that can, that can come along with that. Thankfully, the ransoms themselves do not tend to be material. The cyber criminals, they typically know how to price these attacks so that the victim's willing to pay them. Thankfully, from a credit uh, standpoint, it's, it's not as disruptive, but the actual credit impact comes from the business disruptions that can take place as a result of these types of attacks. 
um, as well as the reputation damage. And the cyber criminals have really been pushing on that. They've been trying to find innovative ways. I hesitate to use that word, but to extort victims. And some of them are not even encrypting data anymore. They're just threatening to tell the world that this organization has experienced some sort of attack. And so we see these attacks continue to evolve. Interesting. One of the ways in which organizations are managing these risks is by taking out cybersecurity insurance. And, and I wanted to ask Leslie, have you seen an increase in this coverage during the pandemic? And how do you see this market evolving going forward? That's a great question. Well, cyber insurance, the market for cyber insurance has been growing very fast over the last few years. In fact, even before the pandemic. So just to give you some numbers, in 2015, total U.S. cyber insurance premiums were about half a billion dollars. By 2019, that number reached $1.3 billion here in the U.S. and $7 billion globally. So that's a very significant market now. Now, we know that from our survey that banks are significant consumers of cyber insurance. About 86% of the respondents said that they carry a cyber insurance policy. But looking ahead, there are headwinds. You mentioned, Leroy talked about ransomware and the number of ransomware attacks that we've seen, and that's resulted in a significant rise in payouts by cyber insurance companies, which is likely going to cause some change in behavior. We wouldn't be surprised to see underwriters start increasing their pricing for cyber insurance, applying more stringent underwriting standards, and even possibly reducing the size of its policy limits. And if, if I could just interject there, um, we're speaking on May 7th, and just this morning I was reading that AXA France, big insurer there, has decided to halt ransomware reimbursements. So for their customers who decided to pay a ransom uh, to criminals, they would reimburse that, but they've said that going forward, they're no longer going to do that because they want to curb the spike in ransomware attacks that have been taking place. So these changes in insurance providers' behavior could actually cause existing and potential policyholders eventually reconsider if buying the policy even makes sense for them. Yeah. We've talked a lot about the current cyber risk climate and what firms are doing to mitigate it. Um, I was wondering, if we look forward, Leroy, in what ways do you think the financial system is changing when it comes to cybersecurity? And are there areas around technology or innovation or risk management practices but that have accelerated or even changed permanently due to the pandemic? The short answer is yes. The, the longer answer would be that we, uh, we put out a report in um, June of last year uh, looking at the shifts that have taken place in the banking world as a result of the pandemic. Um, and we've seen large-scale shifts to digital banking, uh, and as well as we've seen that remote work has accelerated the technology cycle um, even while it's increasing banks' vulnerability to cyber attacks. So uh, corporate customers reap a lot of efficiencies from this because um, they, can, they can save costs. Uh, it's easier to, to have online uh, transactions. Uh, retail customers also appreciate the enhanced functionality. Uh, they like the usability that comes with things like online banking apps. Um, but, uh, you know, Having this very abrupt shift uh, does raise some concerns for, for cyber risks. Uh, it has also increased strains on the critical IT infrastructures um, because, you know, when you have rapid rollouts of new digital solutions, um, there, there are sometimes complications that go along with that. According to a recent report from the World Economic Forum, 
uh, we've seen that the, uh, they, they reported that the fourth most worrisome fallout uh, for companies from the coronavirus epidemic is an increase in cyber attacks and data fraud. So we know that this is top of mind for banks at this time. Now that also squares with what we've been hearing, that the attacks have risen by a couple of factors during the pandemic. In closing, let me ask you, are there any other trends or insights that you have to how cyber risk is likely to develop going forward? Sure. I'll, I'll start by just reiterating um, a point that I made earlier about the greater impact and frequency of attacks. Um, these attacks, as we said, are, are continuing to evolve. We've seen recently attacks like SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange that uh, caught hundreds, thousands of potential victims. Um, thankfully, these attacks were not very impactful. I think there was a lot of remediation, good coordination in the cybersecurity community, uh, but uh, the potential is there for more credit impact. To date, we've only had three ratings actions as a result of a cyber incident. But as these attacks continue to grow in impact and frequency, uh, we expect that there will be more. Um, there's also uh, increased governance around uh, uh, these types of um, cyber incidents. Um, one example that I'll give is that I mentioned I joined Moody's two years ago. I came from a very cybersecurity-focused background. Um, and when I first started having conversations with the, our debt issuers coming in to give presentations, there wasn't necessarily a lot of information about their cyber risk management practices. But now that they've gotten to see uh, both from you know, us uh, speaking with them about it um, and also from the cyber incidents that are appearing more and more in the news, uh, we've seen that they've began to more proactively engage with us around cyber incidents. They will reach out to us, let us know that there's been some sort of uh, cyber attack, what they're doing to remediate it. And so I think that this increased governance is going to bode very well for organizations going forward. And, and Martin, I would also add to that the idea of greater disclosure. I think there's a push towards more transparency about events happening, as well as uh, being more informative about what companies are doing about mitigating and managing this risk. We see some of the most sophisticated banks out there being fairly transparent in terms of the budget that they allocate, the way they structure their cyber security operations internally, whereas the maybe less sophisticated ones are still uh, being more, more cagey about how they're managing risk. Yeah, yeah. And I can see that firms also see the value in effective information sharing and platforms and working together also with the public sector to try to mitigate these attacks. Thank you both very much for your insights. I've enjoyed our conversation. I do look forward to seeing you again, both in person when things normalize. We also want to thank everyone for listening to this podcast and hope that you all stay safe and healthy. And please consider subscribing to the IIF Global Regulatory Update podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much.